Welcome to Sex Care is Self-Care, a conversation on women's sexual health. Today I'm joined by members of our PBF Medical Board to discuss something very interesting. Um, You know this topic is near and dear to my heart. I have many of our consultants, partners, staff members, and even my granddaughter who's dealing with endometriosis. Endometriosis causes pain and other symptoms in around 10% of women during their reproductive years, but is still relatively misunderstood by the general public. There's also a lot of misinformation that can cause confusion, fear about this condition. Can you talk about endometriosis and the impact on sexual health and wellness? Um, and Dr. Iglesias, you have you have somebody joining us today. So do you want to introduce? Yes. You know, we, we work in Washington, D.C. at the MedStar National Center for Advanced Public Surgery. In addition to having urogynecologists, we have minimally invasive gynecologic surgeons who are specially trained. It's a separate fellowship just on dealing with chronic pelvic pain and endometriosis. So I'm pleased to ask my colleague, Dr. Vadim Morozov, who's been my partner for nearly a decade um, here in Washington, and who is an expert. We've done a lot of cases together. So when I you know, saw that I had this question, I was like, Patty, we need to get somebody who really knows what he or she is talking about. And I've got um, you know, four partners and we've got three fellows you know, who, who are just dealing with this. So Dr. Morozov, want to introduce yourself and welcome and thanks for coming on. Really Thank appreciate you. It. Thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Let me know if you can hear me well, because I can always switch the mic. Perfect. Uh, well, it's absolute pleasure to be on a podcast. So endometriosis, as you mentioned, 10%. Some people will say 15% of reproductive age women, depending who you quote, but I guess 10% is a good number, suffer from that disease. It's still an enigma. I mean, we know quite a bit about it. We've learned quite a bit about it in the last 20 years, but we still don't understand truly what causes it how it progresses, why do some women have a lot of disease and a lot of pain associated with that? Other women have a little bit of a disease and a lot of pain. Others have a lot of a disease and almost no pain, right? So if you deal with that for quite a bit of time, you realize that it's such a wide spectrum of issues that women come with endometriosis. And one of the biggest, of course, concerns, and and I I guess on every woman's mind is, will it affect my fertility, right? Or, Or sexual health or an ability to conceive and carry the pregnancy to full term. And the short answer as far as endometriosis, possibly, right? So it's a chronic inflammatory disease. We don't have cure. We have come up long way. We can offer some way to deal with it. And there are surgical management, which is considered the gold standard. And of course, there are some medical management that controls the symptoms associated with endometriosis. But there is no cure. We don't know how to eradicate that disease. And interestingly enough, I mean, I talk about endometriosis and I'm part of the Endometriosis Foundation and the March on Endometriosis. And that's a, it's, a, it's kind of a working joke that if we had a condition, think about it, that affects 10% of male population that prevents them from having sex, having normal lifestyle, going out and working and socializing with their friends, we would have an act of Congress tomorrow mandating $10 billion to be invested in this disease and eradicated, right? But because it's women and a population that sort of like, you know, your grandmother had this problem and the grand-grandmother had this problem and your mother had this problem, suck it up. 
<clears throat> so I think it's it's very um, underrepresented. And going back to fertility and the sexual health, obviously the major symptoms is painful periods, painful intercourse, you know, pain in between the periods. And then we're talking about if the endometriosis becomes really bad, if the disease becomes stage three or four, the highest stages of, of the society, um, it will affect uh, fertility because it causes scar tissue. It causes the local inflammation in the pelvis. It will affect the tube, the fallopian tubes. It will affect the ovaries. And we see, as Dr. Iglesias mentioned, we practice in DC. So there's a shady girl fertility. I think 20 offices all around us. It's hard to underestimate how many patients we get referred to us from shady girl fertility because they obviously seeking care for the infertility treatment. And they come to us saying, I have endometriosis. I have endometrioma. I've had three laparoscopies in the past and I've been diagnosed with endometriosis. And my fertility doctor wants now you to fix whatever endometriosis problem we have so I can go back and then, you know, do my IVF or IUI or whatever they're planning to do there. So it's definitely a problem. Um, we technically, there are probably three different diseases that are lumped together in endometriosis. Um, three different theories of how the disease develops. Uh, most commonly known is that's called retrograde menstruation. Small amount of menstrual blood gets thrown back through the tubes and then becomes endometriotic lesions. A lot of people in, in the endometriosis community don't like that, that explanation. It's very simplistic very often, right? Because almost 100% of menstruating women will have that retrograde menstruation and only 10% will develop endometriosis. So what happened to the other 90%? How come then if all of them do that, um, only 10% develop it? So there's something else is going on. There's definitely uh, immunologic theory saying that there's some disturbances, how that endometriosis gets cleared. And then yes, every woman who menstruates have retrograde menstruation, but then normal immune system kicks in and clears up the endometrial cells from, from peritoneal cavity and you never develop the symptoms. Um, and then women that do have endometriosis, that immune system malfunction at a certain level, we don't know where, but it's clearly, we also know that women with endometriosis and chronic pelvic pain do have much higher risk of other autoimmune diseases, right? So like fibromyalgia, psoriasis, and, and, and everything else that comes with it. So there's definitely some, there's a big sense in the community of endometriosis, pelvic pain specialists, that there is definitely some sort of underlying immune problem. We just can't pinpoint it yet. We can't just put our fingers in and say, oh my God, we found that, that mediator, that marker of autoimmune inflammation. And that, if we can control it, we can control endometriosis. But there's, there's this kind of a impending sense that it's definitely going in this direction. Um, so, and then there's, of course, deep infiltrating endometriosis or rectovaginal endometriosis that doesn't get explained by retrograde menstruation. That's probably some sort of a genetic modification. We call it Mullerian anomaly or, or embryologic changes that happened while the baby was developing, that baby girl was an embryo, and then <clears throat> those, those cells never made it. Um, to where they're supposed to be. And they end up in those weird places, like where not. And interestingly enough, the endometriosis was found literally in every organ in the body except one. Spleen was the only organ that they were never able to diagnose the presence of endometriosis and endometrial implants. And that again points to the fact that 
it probably had autoimmune components. Spleen just so effectively cleans up the endometriotic implant that they've never been able to establish the presence. They found it in the brain, in the heart, in the lungs, in some totally weird places, in the eye. There've been reports of endometriosis found in the, in the eye of people, but spleen was the only one. <clears throat> I, I thought I was always fascinated by that, by, by that finding. That's um, like a good Jeopardy question. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's probably uh, that, that deep infiltrating endometriosis is completely different disease. And then, of course, there are endometriomas, right? So the chocolate cysts over the ovaries. And that's the one that we see a lot with reproductive problems. People coming up saying to us, I can't get pregnant and I have this endometrioma. And, and that's like a separate disease by itself. It's definitely not retrograde menstruation. It's probably not related to the immunologic or, or embryologic development. It's what we call the celomic metaplasia theory where the surface of the ovary suddenly becomes changing and turning into this chocolate cyst that's otherwise known as endometrioma. And because the cyst is so large as a rule, and it creates a whole bunch of a local inflammation in that ovary, of course, those women don't ovulate. Now they have the problem of ovulation, that ovary is not, not functioning. Very often they're bilateral. So both ovaries are involved. And in gynecology, we call them what's called kissing ovaries. The ovaries are so large that if you look at the ultrasound, it looks like the, each ovary is touching each other with those endometrioma cysts. And the other problem is, and actually one of my colleagues who used to be my fellow, Dr. Hazen and George Sarn, not doing research, we also found that those endometriomas inevitably start leaking those chocolate material. Those, they, they, once they reach a certain size, four centimeters, that chocolate fluid starts micro-sipping through the wall and that acts as a glue. Everything sticks to it. The bowel sticks to it. And then the ovary sticks to the pelvic sidewall. The ovary sticks to the uterus. The tube then, of course, gets stuck into this conglomerate of that endometriotic inflammation. And, it, and, and then, of course, it creates the infertility problem. I'm not even talking about pain and, and inability to function and having horrible, painful intercourse because, of course, it feels... <clears throat> When the patient comes to us and they, we ask, do you have pain with sex? And almost universally say yes. And you, you know, you always ask the question, so does it feel, tell me how it feels. And she said, it feels like when we have sex, it's like he's stabbing that point, one particular shard stabbing pain, like there's a knife. And it actually, when you examine and you do very thorough pelvic examination, you can almost get the same response when you feel it. And she goes like, that's exactly how it feels because you as an examiner, as a gynecologist, feel that tender spot. You, you're hitting that spot with your fingers when you do pelvic examination. Um, so it's a big problem. It's a big disease. We're working on it. There's a whole bunch of research. Um, as I mentioned, surgical management is considered the gold standard because it allows you to diagnose it 100%. If you either visualize endometriosis or you can excise the lesion and send it to pathology for endometriosis. The laparoscopy is also curative, right? So if you have enough skills and enough training, when you go in and you see bad disease, you can excise, you can clear up, you can restore pelvic anatomy back to its normal sort of <clears throat> shape. And uh, that allows the, the person to either have normal sexual life, normal, normal regular social life, allows an ability to become pregnant again in the future. Um, there is some medical management that are relatively new, um, couple of years, the problem with the medical management is that it, it addresses the symptoms, right? It doesn't cure the endometriosis. What it does, it helps a woman a little bit with symptoms like pelvic pain and intercourse. But 
really doesn't do anything as an underlying condition why she's having this problem, why she's having painful intercourse or painful, painful, such a debilitating menstrual cramps that she can get out of bed. Um, the newest research in endometriosis is, of course, trying to find markers of the disease. Can we diagnose the disease without cutting in somebody, without subjecting the patient to surgery? Um, and we are part of the multicenter study where we're looking at those markers in the blood. They call microRNA fragments. And there's actually potential to get those markers out of a saliva. So you can do like a cheek swab, very simple. Get the swab out of the cheek and send it to laboratory. And they can look for those microRNA fragments and they're saying it's pretty much, it's 85% sensitive. So <clears throat> pretty good for the test, right? That is not invasive. You can just do a quick swab in it, send it up to lab. And with an 85% of accuracy, which is not what the sensitivity is, but for, um, but pretty, pretty good to get you like, yes, there's 85% chance that your condition is endometriosis related. So that's where we are right now. How um, do you as a doctor determine what stage the endometriosis is in? So... <clears throat> There are four stages uh, based on the revised American Society of Reproductive um, Association. Um, it's one, two, three, and four. One is the mildest and the four is the most severe. Uh, and there are actually tables that allow us to establish whether it's a stage one, two, or three, or four based on the size of the implants, where they are, how many, how deep they go. Um, I'll give you an example, um, but the staging system is a little bit funny. The staging was developed by ASRM specifically for the purpose of fertility, how much it affects the future fertility. It doesn't really do much for us as pain or any other symptoms. A good example is that just the presence of endometrioma automatically makes you stage four disease, right? So without anything else, you don't know. So if you just have endometrioma, it's stage four by default, which is sort of like doesn't make sense because it's one thing to have endometrioma, and that's completely a different thing to have deep infiltrating rectovaginal endometriosis, which is also stage four, for example, right? So- Isn't it interesting, Vadim, how sometimes people can have this stage four and be totally asymptomatic. And absolutely. People can have very early stage and have severe debilitating pain and you can't see it. And I think that that has to do with where this is affecting in terms of the nerves, you know, the right, sensory. Right. So staging, nerve. as I mentioned to us, staging by itself doesn't make much, much of a difference. What we've seen, as Sheryl is saying, is we go in and patient comes to us, for example, I don't know, 25 years old, severe debilitating dysmenorrhea, meaning horrible periods, like doubled over for five days every month. Sexually active says it hurts like hell every time she has sex. We go in, we do the laparoscopy, and we find like two small, three small implants, peritoneal, right? So, but the interesting part is that those three small implants create so much inflammatory reaction and it causes what we know, the neovascularization and neoenervation, those C fibers that are ingrowing toward those implants become hypersensitized. And actually there's a lot of research that's done in the past that nothing's new about that, that the density of those C fibers are much higher all around the endometriotic lesions. So the new nerve endings are growing toward that lesion, new blood vessel supply establishes itself. And it looks like just, yes, three small implants and yet she's in so much pain. And funny, we remove those implants and they do extremely well. But there's also like opportunities for prevention if we can 
stop periods because you don't necessarily need a period every month. And now we've got newer technologies that are actually focused at the mitochondrial level, nitric oxide release, et cetera, et cetera. The stopping the periods work to a certain extent as far as controlling the pain, right? It doesn't do much for cure of endometriosis. Um, there is a potential that if we truly believe that a lot of endometriosis come from retrograde menstruation, then yes, the fewer the periods the woman has, the lighter they are, the shorter they are, the sweeter they are, whatever you want to call it, the better her chance of not having a relapse of endometriosis. Um, that's if we truly, truly believe that what that particular patient is having is a retrograde menstruation peritoneal disease, right? Because if we're talking about endometrioma or deep infiltrating endometriosis, I mean, stopping the period is always good to a certain extent, right? I don't know. I mean, occasionally we see a woman that says, oh yes, I like to have my period every month. It makes me feel good. But as a rule, as a gynecologist, uh, it's, uh, I, I, most women don't miss their periods that much, right? So if you can safely and effectively stop their periods from happening every every month, majority of women will say, "Oh, great, love it." I mean, uh, you know, it's a great it's a great thing not to have a period and not to have this pain. But even if you use some of the other drugs that are designed to stop periods at the hypothalamic level, the problem is you can't use them for so long because it's so bad for your bones. It will That's put correct. you in a state of menopause. Right. So that has to be used balancing, balancing right. the long-term So what Dr. Iglesias is referring to is it's essentially acting generate antagonist, which is a new kind of drugs that's been on the market for about two to three years. And they do block the release of FSH and LH from the brain. And in essence, they cause hypoestrogenic state. So you lower the estrogen. We know that endometriosis is estrogen dependent disease. It's, if it's not developed by the estrogen, it's definitely driven by the estrogen to progression. So if you can lower it, then the symptoms get better, but of course the side effects come with that. There is no free lunch, right? So hot flashes, mood swings. If you stay in that for too long, osteopenia, osteoporosis, those things of course are associated with that. Um, but that's, that's sort of a new medical management of endometriosis. But again, we have to keep in mind and, and we educate our doctors and our colleagues that this is um, to a certain extent a band-aid, right? You're treating the symptoms of the disease. You're not treating a disease. So you still have an endometriosis. You still have a bad disease that is chronic and we don't have a cure. But yes, I can put you on the medication and the symptoms might get better with it. Do you, see, do you foresee a cure for endometriosis? Well, that's a, I think we have to figure out what causes it. Again, why does 10% of women have it? What is it about those 10% of women specifically that predisposes them to develop in this disease? I agree with you. I think it's more than 10%. I think it's, it's something shameful. Women don't talk about, they don't seek attention for it. And I, I do think that it's higher because I see it just with our consultants uh, in our office, even family members. And so, um, and I'm really kind of angry if you want to know the truth that we as women have put ourselves on the back burner and have said oh no take care of everybody else and now watching somebody go through this is really it, it's it's very difficult um yeah so i'm sure it is it's 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 a tough disease to deal with especially if 
if it gets to the bad stages, as we say in stage four and three, it becomes disseminated, multiple organs involved, right? So it's so much easier from a surgical perspective to deal, for example, with a very superficial early disease, then go back and, and deal with this distorted anatomy where the bowel is stuck to everything else and everything else is stuck to everything else around it. So, Yeah. Well, is the general way to kind of relieve, treat this, is it like IUD or? IUD helps to alleviate one of the symptoms like severe dysmenorrhea. I think uh, uh, progesterone containing IUDs such as a Mirena or Skyla, there are at least a few of them on the market nowadays, are uh, really helpful as far as um, eliminating the symptoms of really painful cramps associated with menstrual cycle. But past that point, they really don't do much else. Um, as with any conservative management, doesn't matter which way you go, um, I think everybody needs to think about this. If you have endometriosis, let's say we think you do have endometriosis and you have endometrial implants, no matter what we do conservatively, that those implants don't go away. They never disappear, right? They, they, they change their characteristics. Progestins are known to cause what we call decidualization of endometrial implants, meaning they dry them out. But when the implant dries out, it's still there. It still pulls that peritoneum together. It pulls those nerve fibers in. It still has changes the anatomic surface of that of the pelvic organs now it doesn't bleed every month right it doesn't have this monthly inflammatory response but really nothing happens to that to that implant you just sort of put the lead on that right with a high dose progestin for example the symptoms get better but the disease is still there and that's the problem with with addressing it we need that's why we need um we have when you asked me to speak about this i said you know i want to talk to people who like do this day and day and we operate a lot together but i do not do this the deep dissections and things that are nerve you want to do it nerve sparing because you don't want to treat and then end up worse than the original condition say you can't pee or poop or have orgasm afterwards so it's it's a like an area Lots of work needs to be done. Patty, I'm glad you're bringing this to the table to discuss. I am too, because, you know, I've witnessed again, having employees in here that um, staff members who have not been able to conceive, then I've had my 18 year old granddaughter who's been told that she needs to retrieve her eggs, save them, freeze them. Um, so, I just think that this information is important so that women, mothers, whomever is helping this person through this is able to get this information that they need. I mean, I remember watching, a, I think I had Grey's Anatomy on one night and there was, I think, Sherelle, you and I talked about this where I said, this lady had endometriosis wrapped around her heart, her lung, and you're like, oh no, that's really true. And it's like, the, that's scary. And people, get, they, people bleed into their brain. It's in the meningiomas in the meninges. So yeah. Right. People have, women have bleeding in their lungs into the, they have hematorrhic as during the menses, they have catamenial pneumothorax, meaning every time she's having a menstrual cycle, that menstrual cycle happens inside her lungs. 
Yeah, and we have to dissect things along the lining of the, of the lungs, along the diaphragm itself, inside the heart, multiple cases of it eating into the bladder and the bowel, and you get, you know, a lot of problems with, you know, bleeding. So it's a, it's, it's an enigma. We need to have a separate, you know, conversation about this and bring in a lot of experts, including basic scientists, because I feel like, yeah, what Vadim is talking about, you know, the, the all the basic science theories, we, you know, we need to, we need more information on that. I agree. I do think that we do need a lot more research, but I do think we need to do uh, um, a deeper dive into this and maybe even bring on some um, patients that have gone through this because, you know, people who are listening want to know that they're not alone. They want to hear maybe some of the things that is happening in their medical health so we should get get some questions from the associates that are from the women that they encounter and we can also bring in there are a lot of advocacy groups specifically and physical therapists who are literally designed uh trained just for endometriosis as well i would love to do this so i think this is an important topic i hope this year that we grant something in endometriosis hint 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 so yeah we're on the think, board. We can make that happen. <laughs> yeah. You are on the board. You're the one that makes it happen. So I think if it's anybody really... can make it happen, that's your real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. This, this woman, this one right here. <laughs> um, I really appreciate you coming on. I hope that you join us in our further discussion. Thank you so much. You've brought a lot of light to the subject. And I think that, you know, people have heard endometriosis, really not knowing what it's all about. And I think a lot of times when you experience it or have a loved one, it's it's it's, it's a difficult thing to watch someone go through. So I'm going to be one of the first ones that are going to rally for more research on this. So thank you so much again. And I can't wait to meet you again and spend time with you in the future here. My so pleasure. Come to visit us in DC. I'm oh, yeah. going to. He's coming to SGS 2023. <laughs> great, great seeing you all, guys. All right. Thank you. Thanks for being up today. Bye. Thank you. Have a great one. Wow, that that was amazing. Um, does anybody else have any other questions or anything to add to this? Patty, just very quickly, I think um, endometriosis is so prevalent and so common that it kind of overshadows sometimes some other pelvic pain conditions. So I just wanted to remind the consultants to remind their um, their clients that um, pelvic pain conditions are not always endometriosis um, and I do want I do want to have endometriosis be it have its time to shine but I just also want to give a plug for knowing that other things can happen in the pelvis that cause pain unfortunately I see patients um, who have had uh, varying degrees of endometriosis and have had a complete hysterectomy and had their ovaries removed and then still have pain because of other pain conditions like bladder pain, pelvic floor pain, which um, Kathleen can talk on some more and um, other psychosomatic pain disorders. So I just wanna make sure that um, the consultants also know that um, not everything that's pain in the pelvis is endometriosis and to also know that there's other things that could be contributing to um, pelvic pain. And Dr. Kingsburg takes care of a lot of women who have fertility related issues because, uh, you know, 
being in an OBGYN department, you know, as a psychologist, PhD, you know, that's a big deal. I mean, Cheryl is like- a We also have a large fertility program. And so I, I, you know, I'm part of ASRM and we do a lot with chronic pelvic pain and fertility. And can I just say that <laughs> there is, you know, sex for procreation um, is not a great way to enjoy sexuality. And so it's, you know, the impact on struggling on your body image, on your sense of failure, on not being able to conceive for whatever reason, um, plus pain, certainly um, does uh, so much uh, damage to one's sexual life. So um, it, it, we, we are impacted in every way, which is why, you know, being uh, in a uh, OBGYN office makes all the difference. Um, it's but unique in that sense. Yeah, but you know, women's sense of femininity is often tied to their fertility. Uh, just as men's sense of virility is tied to their fertility. And so we need to kind of unpair that because you have no control over whether you can conceive or not. People think they can. And, you know, for women who are struggling with infertility, when their friends say, oh, I'm going to get pregnant in June, so I can deliver in this month. And, and the, they take it for granted. Um, it is so hard for women to, to uh, comprehend and to deal with. They often isolate and get, you know, depressed. They can't do Facebook they can't, or whatever people do these days. I don't know that younger women do Facebook. TikTok, um, TikTok. So the, the it is pervasive. So um, you know this topic, you know, just sort of like endometriosis expands to the entire realm of women.